On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about police body cameras. Hamilton Police Service says not going to be recommending that police in this city have body cameras. But what do the police themselves say? Well, we'll talk to the head of the police union to get that answer. Uh, we're going to be chatting about Don Cherry's replacement. Who should replace Don Cherry on Coach's Corner? Should there even be a Coach's Corner? What if there's not going to be? What should fill in there? Well, lots to talk about on that one. And you may not have heard this, but a Hollywood studio is resuscitating James Dean. They are bringing him back from the dead. 64 years after he died, he will be playing a part as a, a supporting actor in a movie coming up. Computers. Computers. Using his likeness, bringing him back to life. Is this a good idea? Do we want to do this with movies? And if we do it with movies, where else does this technology take us? All that's coming up. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We learned today that the Hamilton Police Service is recommending against the use of body cameras by police officers here in town. Here's a quote from the report that comes from. It says, after five years of review, there has not been an identified benefit that outweighs considerations of cost, change to infrastructure, and impacts on privacy, the report says. Now, some say that not having body cameras would be a mistake, or at least abandoning the idea of body cameras. Others, including the authors, obviously, of this report, say there just isn't a case to be made for them at this point. What do the officers themselves think? Well, we can't ask them all, but we can ask the man who represents them. His name is Cliff, uh, Clint Tulin. He's the president of the Hamilton Police Association. He joins us now. Clint, thanks for doing this today. Well, thanks for uh, having me on, Scott. Did you know that uh, this report and this conclusion were coming today? No, I didn't, actually. I, uh, it, it, it certainly doesn't surprise me, but uh, no, I wasn't made aware of it prior to it, uh, uh, the information being released. So what are your thoughts when you hear this? Uh, again, going back to the line that it doesn't, uh, that, that quote, there's not an identified benefit that outweighs the cost, the infrastructure changes, and the impacts on privacy. What do you think about that? Well, I think there's a few points to be taken from that particular statement, and I think the overwhelming um, point being made is cost. I, I have no doubt that that's uh, probably the major influencing factor on whether or not to have the the, the, the cameras. I mean, it, it, that comes down to more of a subjective and individualistic uh, viewpoint because there's many people, including police officers, who would think that uh, any one single incident would justify the expenditures that would be made uh, to have body-worn cameras. Right, and the and the cost that we know of, the, the there was a pilot project that estimated 100 cameras. How many members do you have in your association, by the way? Well, if you're looking at strictly frontline patrol, you're probably looking in the neighbourhood of, um, I'm going to say somewhere in the neighbourhood of uh, 250 to 300 um, uh, frontline officers. But, of course, they're not working on every uh, every single shift. So you're probably looking at... I'm going to say in the neighborhood of 100 to 120 cameras. Basically. All right, and, and the estimate, estimates were that 100 cameras would cost about $900,000 if they were going to do this. Okay, so from your, you deal with the officers all the time. You talk to your members. You get a sense of where things are going, especially on hot-button issues like this one. What, from your perspective, what's the general feeling from officers about either pro or con this idea of body cameras? Well, I think it's important to focus on why I... I have interactions, you know, many times with the officers, and and that is in the complaint realm where there where where allegations are being made against the officers. 
if I was to go and poll those officers, I would say the overwhelming majority would be in favor of body-worn cameras because the allegations being set out against them are either inaccurate or just plain false. So I would say in that that group, I would say the officers are fully behind it. Uh, you know, the, the technology, like, I don't know where those costs, costings have come from. Um, the technology it, itself continues to advance, and that's on basically, like, on a, on a regular basis. Um, I know the costs have come down. One of the biggest concerns was storage, whether you're, you're, you're going to be storing information like that to the cloud, whether it be through, you know, in, internal mechanisms. Um, but I would have to say that the vast majority of the police officers, um, well, first of all, the officers go out there and do a great job every day. They're, they're put in very difficult situations, and they react professionally uh, in almost every case. So their, their support for the program would be there. Um, I, I, I don't doubt that uh, they, they would see that that would benefit them. Right, and I don't disagree with you. I mean, I, my sense on this is I, I personally believe that 99% of the officers are doing a great job and doing that 99% of the time. I mean, every look, every profession is going to have the one that goes awry or does something bad or something stupid. That, that happens everywhere. But it seems to me then that if you're one of those officers that's doing your job properly and doing the right thing, you would want the cameras because then again, when those complaints, if they were to come in or heaven forbid, if there's a shooting or some major incident, you would have the proof to show you did the right thing. And a lot of these complaints and the rumors and everything else doesn't happen. Well, absolutely. And, and I read a quote today um, that it would hold the officers accountable. Well, I can Which it would. Right now, it also would hold the public accountable to, to making allegations. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've sat in an interview in which the allegations are completely false. Had, a, had the officer been wearing a, a body-worn camera, it would have refuted them right off the bat. And, and it, it, we talked about 99% of the time. Well, I can tell you that, you know, every, like every human being, officers have bad days. And, it, you know, knowing that you're wearing that, that camera, you know, you know, whether you're having a bad day or not, whether you end up saying something that maybe you would re- regret two, two seconds after it comes out of your mouth, it might cause that, that, that double check, you know, oh, I'm wearing this camera. Um, you know, yeah, I may be having a bad day, but I just have to control my emotions a little bit more. It happens, and, and those officers, when they're confronted with those allegations, they, 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 they take ownership of them. Um, so I, I think it's important to know not only are the officers going to be held accountable, but the public as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting with Clint Tolan, who's the president of the Hamilton Police Association, about body cameras, Hamilton Police Services recommending against bringing in a body camera program in this city, which is, some people are liking it, some people are not liking it. And just before the break, Clint, you, you made a good point, and that is, and I was going to get to it, you beat me to it, but this is a two-sided thing. This, The idea, to me, of body cameras protects the police and protects the public, right? Because you now have, as you said, you've got the police who if they maybe weren't going to be on their best behavior, knowing that what they do is going to be captured on camera, they should be. And the public, if they know that what they are doing is going to be captured on camera, presumably would make them on their better behavior too. Yeah, well, absolutely. And um, let's be honest, everybody has a cell phone. Everybody is uh, is a newfound director and film editor and so on and so forth. If you have an iPhone, you're able to edit a movie pretty quickly and, um, you know, we, we see a lot of videos of, uh, of police behavior, but often um, experience dictates that it's edited or it's, it's, it's at least 
the start and stop times well, are there's context. Uh, convenient, we'll say. There, so. There's context you need with those. Absolutely. Absolutely there is. And so this would provide a little bit of context from another point of view as well. So um, I, think, I think it is a beneficial tool to use. I understand the cost. You know, it, it can be prohibitive, but at the same time, um, we are seeing significant changes in the industry as to the, the, you know, how these things are being used. I mean, I was actually, uh, I, I apologize for just yattering on here, but the I was at a, a conference last week and um, there was a presentation about body-worn cameras and the technology is so much better. Um, they've actually got uh, cameras that will actually initiate or start, start up uh, on certain cues, such as a gunshot. Um, so the technology is different. The costs are coming down, and I do think that it actually benefits both sides. You and I both know that there are some people listening right now who are going to say, well, of course he's saying that the public will be on their behavior, and this will help police, this will protect police against scurrilous complaints, and I'm sure that's true. But would it be fair to say, even though you are a guy who, who fights for police officers, if there was a bad cop in the city, and there was a cop who was doing something wrong and the camera caught him, you would want that cop cleaned up or gotten out as well. You don't want bad cops running around the town. Absolutely, Scott. I, I myself, I'm a police officer. I mean, I'm seconded into this position, but um, those types of officers most certainly um, give all of us a bad name. Those aren't the people that we want representing our organization and more importantly, dealing with the public. Um, and if if this is, you know, a tool in, in, in helping to identify those those particular people, um, then absolutely we'd be supportive of that. And these things, I, I mean, I'm, do we have it, do we know if having cameras on officers elsewhere, do we know if there's any evidence that it brings down the number of complaints or raises the number of complaints one way or the other? Um, anecdotally, I can speak to that. Um, you know, there's different studies across the U.S. in particular. Uh, some of them are slightly skewed because of, you know, it might be the particular area or the population base or, you know, um, it's easy to say that, you know, um, in some jurisdictions in the states where you have, a, you know, a 75% drop in public complaints, but if your original number was 15 complaints in the first place, you know, it, it doesn't really draw a very good uh, picture. But um, I can tell you anecdotally just from my conversations with Calgary, um, the officers for the most part do appreciate the value that it brings and it does hold both the police and the and the uh, and the public more accountable well and even if there are the same number of complaints i would have to believe that once that complaint is filed and everybody sits down and looks at the tape it's either going to proceed with some meat on the bone or it's going to go away pretty quickly if there's nothing there well and actually you bring up a really good point that um what the public does not understand and um it's very common the investigations that we're talking about, public complaints, come at a really high cost as well, uh, whether it's the OIPRD, whether it's internal, whether it's the SIU. Those, you know, the SIU, it's a criminal investigation. It costs tens of thousands of dollars to conduct one of those investigations. Um, the, the ability to um, deal with the, the, the complaint right off the bat, and I can tell you, I can, I can give you many examples where uh, the complaint is frivolous, it's vexatious, but yet it runs its course through the uh, complaint process because there's no video evidence to refute it one way or the other or to confirm it. And so um, that is that is something that the public needs to be aware of. There's a 
a huge cost into these investigations, and body-worn cameras can certainly nip those in the bud. So let's use one, we only have a minute or so left, let's use a famous example from around here. Recently, we had that case involving Matt Green, who was a city councillor at the time, now an MP. Uh, That ran its course. We won't get into that one, but presumably if the officers were wearing a body camera at that time, we would have been able to probably sort through that reasonably quickly or push that down the road towards a hearing pretty quickly, knowing what we were dealing with, clearly knowing what we were dealing with. Well, absolutely. I, I can tell you that the public there, the public complaint would never have come in in the first place if that uh, officer was wearing a body-worn camera. It's, um, it, it, I, it's an interesting one because, again, I, I see a lot of benefit to this. Clearly, the police board doesn't at this point. We'll see if that changes at any point down the road. Clint Toulon, who is the president of Hamilton Police, Service, Hamilton police Association, not police service. That'll be a different job altogether. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks for the time. Well, thanks for having me on, Scott. Let us, uh, yeah, that, you know what, again, I, I, I see the benefit to this. I, I just, I, to me, it keeps the police honest if you're worried about the police not being upright, and it keeps the public honest and stops frivolous complaints or allows the public complaints to be dealt with properly. I don't see the big downside except for the cost, I guess. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show. Little gangsta's paradise. I don't know who the gangsta is in our next conversation. I don't know if it's Don Cherry or my next guest, Rick Zamperin. We just sent him home. We just let him dust off his car here at CHML, get the snow off, and then come right back on the radio. Rick, how are you? Good. How are you? I am good. He's not even out of the car yet. He didn't even make it home yet. How about that? I'm. I'm. To, to be honest, I'm just pulling into the driveway. Oh, well, there you go. Now, did you hear? Um, I don't know if you heard the news this week. Don Cherry was fired. Did you hear that? I, uh, yeah, I heard that. Somebody mentioned something. I didn't, I didn't catch the whole story. Uh, this has of course led to, uh, endless discussion in endless corners about endless opinions from endless perspectives, uh, including one, uh, apparently I saw this one today, one TV show, kind of a Canadian version of the view that went completely off the deep end and responded to sweeping generalizations by offering sweeping generalizations. Anyway, it's, it's, it's amazing that Don Cherry has been able to create this kind of chaos. Is it not? Uh, or maybe not at all. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it has certainly been an extraordinarily, you know, uh, last few days and there isn't really a lot of gray area. I mean, there's not a lot of people that I've talked to, or that I've heard from or seen on social media, or even today in the protest in front of uh, Rogers Sportsnet downtown in Toronto, that uh, were kind of, you know, sitting on the fence. Either we're standing in support of what Don said, or you're virtually on the other end of the spectrum and really condemning, uh, you know, his comments and the thought behind those comments. So it's really been an interesting last few days. Do you think that people who are supporting him are really standing behind the comments per se, or are they standing behind... The guy and the the sort of against the cancel culture, shut down anyone who offends you a little bit kind of attitude. I, I see. I see it more that way. It's not the comments. It's the someone said something that offended us. We must get rid of them, and that's what people are fighting back against. Yeah, I, I think it's one hundred percent the latter. You know, the 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 thought that you can say something and, and really not mean it and still get fired for it. Although I, I think there's still some gray matter in whether. You know, Mr. Cherry meant what he said, although he did say that he would, you know, walk back some of the comments and say, 
uh, you know, we choose the word everyone as opposed to, you know, you people and, and pointing to, to new Canadians. But I think, yeah, it's, it's more the latter as people are upset that, you know, they've watched this individual for 30 plus years. Uh, you know, they're, they're massive fans of what he stands for. They realize, I think we all realize that Don Cherry is a massive supporter of Canadian military personnel, uh, both active and retired and, and unfortunately no longer with us in, in many cases. Uh, and he was a huge supporter of, you know, people wearing poppies and showing their support for uh, war veterans. So, you know, I don't think anyone can take that uh, away from him. Uh, but yes, they are upset that he has been turfed over what many people think is, is really a minor offense. So, okay, regardless, though, uh, the way this is going, there is zero to minus one million percent chance that he's ever being brought back with Rogers or with Sportsnet or with CBC. They're just not going to do it. This is he's done with this. Right. There's no there's no chance they're going to reconsider. So the question has then become, and you did this as your commentary yesterday. Uh, the question has now become, all right. So who steps into that void? And before I ask you for who you think would be your pick. I should probably ask you, should there be a coach's corner? Or could you have anyone step in and do coach's corner? Or do you have to scrap the whole thing and say, listen, he's been doing it for, what, 38 years? You can't just fill it. you got to find a whole different venue. Well, I'll answer both questions with the same answer. No one. I think it would be a massive mistake for Hockey Night in Canada, CBC Sportsnet, to name anybody to say this is the new uh, you know, individual for Coach's Corner, whether it's, I know Brian Burke's name has been tossed around there. He is, you know, he's grown tell it like it is, no holds barred, uh, I don't care what you think type of, uh, you know, hockey commentator. He's been in the business in all facets of the game. Uh, I know there's been suggestions that maybe it should be a female who joins Ron McLean on that first intermission Coach's Corner show. In my view, you, you and this is you know the blog that I have today is you know Don for all his faults over the years and you said you know many controversial things and it wasn't just this past Saturday, you know he was a massive draw in terms of uh, hockey fans and even non-hockey fans just to see what he was going to say and he was a massive cash cow for the CDC for many years, uh, but you know at the end of the day he's irreplaceable. You cannot replace a man, uh, an identity. Uh, uh, a person of that ilk with someone else who's close or, or even at the other end of the spectrum. Who's trying uh, to have, imitate. Who's trying to imitate in yeah, some you, way. You can't, I mean, they can bring up Mike Milbury, who's basically the same as Don Cherry. And, he, he, you know, he works his craft with NBC Sports with their hockey coverage. Uh, or a Jeremy Roenick, who's, you know, of, of that same kind of mentality, very to the point, uh, you know, you tell it like it is individual, but, I think they got to go in a completely different direction. I think you scrap Coach's Corner entirely. I think you do something with either a round table or, or duplicate the hot stove lounge that they have in the second remission, which is a great you know segment. they got to do something, I think, completely different. And yet I have a feeling that, uh, to your point, I have a feeling that the folks running Rogers right now are scared to death because you, you can't, from their perspective, I'm sure you're thinking, we can't have this happen twice. We can't bring someone else in looking for someone to be controversial and they say something that is going to lead to another firestorm. So do we really want controversy now in this, or do we simply want safe hockey pablum that no one's really going to get offended by, but it's not going to get us on the hot seat? Yeah. At the end of the day, they're in the entertainment business, right? So they have to entertain us. They have to continue to draw on those sponsor dollars to pay their bills. 
So they're going to want to have, if they do try to duplicate it or try to continue on with Coach's Corner, uh, they're really going to have to have an exceptional individual who people gravitate to like they did to Don for many, many years. That's right. Because, again, if you bring in someone who says nothing, no one's watching. If you bring in someone who's way too controversial, they're going to get fired in the first five minutes. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Who's the person who can fit the balance? And and now, here's the other problem. You now have two such strongly divided camps, as you pointed out on the start of this. How do you possibly win with whoever you pick if you're picking one person? Because half the people want X and half the people want Y as far as the personality type. You're already going to tick off half your audience as soon as you announce who it is. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Rick Zamprin of 900 CHML, his opinion piece or his commentary yesterday was about who should replace Don Cherry with the ultimate answer being, well, you can't really replace Don Cherry. So what do you do then to replace Don Cherry? And Rick, there have been a lot of people, you mentioned a couple of the options before the break, uh, a round table, a... Uh, a group a discussion, something else entirely different. What you're the head of Rogers now. So before we choose who, what would you put in there? You got any ideas what you would put in there to try and make it work? I think you know when you're you're broadcasting to hockey fans, so they know the game, they understand uh, you know the the stars of the game, uh, and I think for each hockey fan, they have a favorite player and they have a favorite moment. I think. Uh, if I'm Ron McLean, I'm really pitching for let's bring the greatest hockey players that have ever played this game, who are obviously still with us, into the studio for a one-on-one. So it's the Wayne Gretzky's, the Mark Messier's, the Mario Lemieux's, the Patrick Laws, all these superstars, the elite of the elite, into the studio for a one-on-one to talk about their careers, what they're up to now, uh, and maybe even uh, make it a very lax format in terms of, you know, forget about wearing the suits or whatever they're, they're wearing that particular day. Just have a, uh, a roundtable kind of discussion with the greats of the game. Mark Messier sitting in his family room in his skivvies eating Doritos or Frito-Lays or whatever it is, just chatting <laughs> hockey. <laughs> yes, that, I'd, I'd tune into that. Um, you, you know what my fear of that would be is uh, if you've ever watched any of the Sunday night Rogers hometown hockey, yeah. the... Features they tend to do tend to fall into the Olympics format, the over-schmaltzy, try-to-ring-tears-out-of-people, over-sentimental pieces that it's like, you know what, once in a while those are fine, but they don't work when you do it every single time with the soft music and the slow motion and the fuzzy filters and everything like it, that would be my concern that that oh let's do that again yeah and to and to that end it would have to be something different than that it would have to be you know stories that people have rarely heard or you know embarrassing moments yeah stuff that yeah. we've never heard before that would still be of interest to us funny stuff that you know almost now they'd be terrified to do this after what just happened but different <laughs> yeah, different would. players with their best banquet circuit stories that they tell at <laughs> banquets think about just guys telling stories about each other yeah um i mean i, I my initial thought was all right uh, well here's the problem you can't Whatever you're going to do there, that has been a big moneymaker for them. You can't turn the first intermission into a time when everybody gets up from the couch, goes and has a pee and gets a sandwich. You have to find something that's going to keep people still sitting there watching their set. And I thought, you know what, have two people of opposite sides of the hockey spectrum and just have a debate format every week where they can just like launch into each other and it can be 
you know, and then presumably all your fans are falling on one side or the other. They can find a hero that they want to stand behind on this, and you create discussion like Don Cherry always did. Uh-huh. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, if you do that, like a, a part of the interruption style, yeah. just a, yeah, a, a, a him versus her or, or person A versus person B, uh, that, yeah, that could be, uh, that could be interesting. At the risk of delving into something that gets us into uh, the same amount of criticism as Don Cherry, no, not so much. We won't. We would never be able to reach those levels. But what would the response be? Do you think if the person that was brought in to be the replacement for Don Cherry was a woman? Um, I don't think it would really matter. But at the end of the day, if this you know woman, you know Madam X, let's call her, is introduced as the new coach's corner, uh, you know mouthpiece. I think the first show would be highly rated because everyone's going to want to tune in to see what this woman would would say or what this person would say, even if it is you know uh, a different individual and it happens to be a male. I think that first show is going to be uh, you know highly rated in terms of people wanting to find out. Okay, what are they doing? Who's this person? What do they have to say? And then afterwards, depending on that how that first show went. Uh, probably a significant drop off, but you know, personally, uh, I would not have an issue if it was a woman. At the end of the day, no matter who it is—male, female, alien—what comes out of their mouth is the most important thing. Are they interesting? Is it engaging? Are they controversial? Do they push the envelope? Uh, you know, am I interested in what they are talking about? I think at the end of the day, at least for me, and I think most hockey fans who tune into the program want to hear uh, substance to what is being said. And the interesting part about that is uh, it may simply be that more women, enough women have not been given opportunities, and that could be the answer. Mm -hmm. But of those who do hockey right now, I don't see one that generates the kind of debate and discussion that you would want for that program. It doesn't mean that there's not a woman out there who could do it. I just don't know that there's someone in the game or in the broadcasting community right now that does that. Yeah, I mean, the no name, no mind, name comes to mind right off the top of my head. Yeah, in, in terms of the, the the ones that do come to mind, you know, uh, Cassie Campbell Pascal, you know, good reporter, very good. I don't think, I don't think fits that kind of uh, you know highly publicized, excitable kind of character. <clears throat> Christine Simpson, another reputable, uh, you know, good interviewer, excellent. But again, not an individual that is going to you know get your blood flowing or, or make you think about you know certain issues. You know, even a, a superstar hockey player like a Haley Rickenheiser, amazing player, does great in interviews, but can she be that person who is going to kind of stoke the fire or, or you know uh, flip the embers around and make you think about certain things and get you fired up? I, I'm not, you know, one doesn't really come to mind and say, yeah, that is the person. And that person could be out there. We're not arguing against that. I just don't see them. It's There's no obvious one right now. Maybe, I, I'm sure that if you put out a search for one, you could find somebody, but we'll see what they're going to do. They're going to, they're going to have to do something. And, and I'll tell you what, this, uh, this weekend, Saturday night is going to be well viewed. I'm sure from people just to see, you know what they should do? Here's my idea for this weekend. You're old enough, probably barely, to remember the day that Roger Nielsen was fired by Harold Ballard and then he begged him to come back onto the bench wearing a bag on his head. Yes. First intermission, mystery host on Coach's Corner, and the bag comes off the head and it's John Terry. Ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's happening. Anyway, yeah. Rick Zamprin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a movie coming out in the next number of months. I don't know when the release date is. Anyway, it's going to star James Dean in a supporting role. Yeah, James Dean. Yes, I know James Dean has been dead for 64 years. 
It's called posthumous casting now. Computer technology is in existence that will take images and clips of actors, of people, and bring dead people back to life, essentially, in movie, on celluloid. Uh, To some degree, we kind of saw this with Elvis a few years ago. Remember that song that came out eight or 10 years ago, a little less conversation, but that was, that was his voice that was recorded. It was just put with a new dance track in the background. It's not exactly what he had done, but not exactly the same, but it was brought someone back from the dead. Kind of, uh, you could also point sort of to the hologram tour that's going on right now with Roy Orbison. But again, that's something he did for that purpose. It was a recording of a concert. They've just turned it into a hologram. So it's not really doing something different. It's just reviving what was already there. This is creating something new, using an image for something completely different. James Dean did not act for this movie somehow. Anyway, I want to bring in a friend of this show, a guy we love having on here because he is the pop culture guy. His name is Robert Thompson. He's the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, and I want to say to the audience, when I called Robert today to say, can you come on? He said in a pleading voice, we're not going to talk about impeachment or Disney Plus, are we? So I said, no, no, no Disney Plus. And he says, okay, fine, we can do this one. <laughs> uh, there, there is a, a critical mass forming on those two topics for sure. Uh, okay. Yeah, I couldn't get Disney Plus for the first uh, five hours. It, uh, like many other people, it, uh, it crashed. And was that a, a shocking and uh, disappointing and devastating moment, five hours for you? No, uh, <laughs> I, I, I could have lived yet another week without the Mandalorian, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Well, that is a relief. I, you know, I would hate to have you on here if you're in like a totally down frame of mind because Disney had let you down. I have to say, there is some cool stuff on there. They've got a decade-by-decade decade button that goes back to the 20s. I mean, Disney has got a body of content that's almost 100 years old, so it is pretty extraordinary. Well, without getting into Disney+, Plus, because I promise you we wouldn't, the one okay. thing I did see on there that was kind of interesting in a 2019 social justice, political correctness kind of way is there's a lot of those old animated movies that are now coming with warnings that some of the stuff you're going to see was okay for its time, but maybe questionable now. Right, and uh, in Disney's case, it is a very very short warning. It's, it, it's a, uh, a couple of sentences uh, uh, that doesn't, uh, you know, claim any responsibility. Suppose when Warner Brothers came out, uh, Disney just says, this program is presented as originally created. It may contain outdated cultural depictions. That's it. Warner Brothers, when they showed some of that old Tom and Jerry stuff and everything, had a much longer uh, disclaimer. But you've got to put something on there, because people who just stumble on that stuff, uh, frankly, they're going to have to start putting that on episodes of Seinfeld. I was uh, flipping through, and uh, I'd forgotten about this, but I stumbled on that episode of Seinfeld where um, he's got a uh, girlfriend who collects vintage toys, and he wants to play with them, but she won't let him touch them. So he drugs her, so she falls asleep, so he can play with her toys. I would suggest that probably uh, that would be the case for, I mean, how many, I, we, are, we watch Frasier regularly. It's on on TV up here. We watch it on Crave in, in, here in Canada. And uh, there's, you know, there are a lot of gay jokes in there. There's, everything has its time and everything, and it doesn't, I, see, here's what I don't think. I don't believe that that makes them the actors or whatever, homophobes. I mean, it was a different time. It was a different time, and now, again, we we look at things differently. I I don't know that we should be critical of them necessarily for that back then. 
Well, I think we should be critical insofar as we're critical of the, you know, the time when we didn't let vi- women vote. We should be critical of time when we still uh, 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 had legalized slavery. I don't think we should make these shows disappear. I do think a, a message that puts them in context uh, is important. I think we should know that this is how we used to do things. So I don't know that all that stuff was okay back then. It is kind of encouraging that we have evolved to some extent uh, that we don't do that anymore. And that, that's if you can see anything encouraging about watching an old Warner Brothers or Disney uh, cartoon from the 1930s, uh, it's the fact that it does make us uncomfortable. We've become more sophisticated. Well, and I would say it's encouraging that Disney is not just saying we're never showing these again. I think we can be mature enough, adult enough, sophisticated, whatever word you want to use to say, you know what, we can still watch these and make decisions on our own. Yeah, I, I think you're right. To make to erase it is to is to claim that it never happened. Although I don't think Disney is going all the way. I didn't see Song of the South, which is something they took right. out of uh, uh, circulation a long time ago. For some good reason, there's a lot of disturbing stuff in there. Um, I don't think that's on Disney Plus, but wow, you did manage to get me to talk about. Okay, Disney let's move along. Disney. Let's let's move along. Not enough Disney Plus. Uh, okay, so this movie with James Dean. Uh, the, oh, yeah. the, okay, so this movie is called. Let me just find the name of this thing again. It's uh, now I've forgotten the name of this thing altogether. It is called. Um, <laughs> Finding Jack, and it is going to star James Dean in a supporting role. And I read the, through the thing and found out what they're talking about. It's CGI and everything else. When you hear this, do you think, wow, that is so cool what we can do with computers now? Or do you hear this and say, that's kind of terrifying a little bit that we're doing that with dead actors? Well, I have both of those uh, responses. I mean, it, it is amazing what we can now do with computers. The, the, the stuff we can make look as though it really happened uh, is, is extraordinary. And sometimes it can be a, a lot of fun. Um, at the same time, uh, especially if I were an actor, the idea that as computer-generated uh, stuff gets more and more sophisticated as voices can get uh, uh, better and better, uh, there's this question is, at some point, will we need humans uh, to act at all? Exactly. But you, you were right, though. Uh, we've, we've been doing the holograms. Uh, uh, Natalie Cole sang a duet with her father, Nat yes. King Cole, long after he died, which is still a big hit. Um, Back in the 80s, Paula Abdul was dancing with Gene Kelly and uh, Groucho Marx in a, was either a Pepsi or a Coke commercial. I think it was uh, a Pepsi. So we've seen that, but this, <laughs> this seems to go in a completely different direction, as you pointed out. They've actually cast him. But I get a kick out of some of the... I have a feeling this is going to be a terrible movie. Well, it could um, be. It, it, it could be, but it blurs a line. Because we, we know movies are not real, but this still in some weird way blurs a line. And I don't know what that line is, but I just feel it blurs a line. Well, there's a couple of great quotes have come out of uh, uh, this from the uh, Hollywood Reporter, who I think broke this story. Uh, and one of the producers, and I'm quoting what the producer said... We searched high and low for the perfect character to portray the role of Rogan, which has some extreme complex character arcs. And after months of research, we decided on James Dean. (laughs) Now, (laughs) that is about the stupidest thing I've ever heard, only insofar as here we've got this movie, Finding Jack or whatever it is, that apparently, in the eyes of the producer, is so complex, 
has got such a sophisticated character, <laughs> is so unbelievably difficult to cast, that the only thing they could do of all the hundreds of millions of people in the world was to get a dead actor to do it. Who was 24. Yeah, right. <laughs> when he died, yeah. So this this idea that that nobody else could have played this except James, James Dean, of course, is a ridiculous idea. But the quotes get even better. Then there's an agent who represents the, uh, I guess, the uh, who got the permission from the Dean family, uh, something like that, uh, is quoted as saying, this opens up a whole new opportunity for many of our clients who are no longer with us. <laughs> so the, this idea of, you know, the, 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 new, the new profession of representing dead people uh, uh, for movies is a, it sounds like a, 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 a sketch you'd hear on Second City or Saturday Night Live. Man, the Adams family are going to be huge any minute now. Um, right. But, okay, so, and again, there's a line here, and I'm just trying to figure out where the line is, because, again, we know that stuff that we see in movies, unless it's a documentary, and then even then we're trusting that what we're seeing is being reflected properly. But we know stuff in movies is not real. So how does this really differ from, say, a Marvel movie or something else where we know that the superheroes are not flying, we know that the Hulk is not really turning into the Incredible Hulk? Where's the difference? Right. How many times have we destroyed New York City in the movie? Sure. Um, uh, by hurricane, by snowstorm, by bomb, and all this kind of stuff. Well, I, I think actually the line will ultimately be drawn by viewers themselves. Um, insofar as even with the technology, even let's even give the technology another five years, which is a lot for uh, technology. Let's say we can really begin to reanimate these. Uh, uh, actors that have passed away by taking their body of work and letting computers fill in all the uh, all the other stuff. Um, there's still going to be an enormous difference between that and a performance. When you get a, give a performance, if you're a good actor, each reading has a slightly different nuance. You're bringing all of this, uh, uh, you know, years of training and all the rest of it. A computer is never going to be able to do that. Um, they may make this finding, Jack, and James Dean, he's not the star of it. I think he's in a supporting role. Um, but uh, he may be in it, and the scenes he's in may even uh, uh, you know, work out okay. But I can be pretty certain that James Dean is not going to get nominated for an Oscar, because I don't think machines are ever going to be able to, even as we get more and more sophisticated and beyond you know, things sounding like Siri and Alexa, um, Acting is a really subtle art, and I think uh, it's one of the things that humans are going to always have to do. Wouldn't that be awkward? You get your first Oscar nod when you've been dead for 64 years. It'd be worse, though, to lose to a guy <laughs> who was dead for 64 years. Could you imagine? What a, what a bad night the Academy Awards night would be that night. You got your awards speech all written, and you find out that you lost to a corpse. Um, well, there's been bad nights at the Academy Awards before. That would be yep. just another one of them. So I I take your point, and I think you're correct about the fact that you're always going to uh, actors are always going to be more nuanced and more subtle, and there's going to be things there. But we've got this movie that's just out now, and it's coming on to Netflix at the end of this month, the The Irishman by Martin Scorsese, and oh, the yeah, computers, yeah. and it's been a big deal because they've got computers now that will de-age Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. And I have not seen the movie yet. I don't know if you have, but apparently it's 
thoroughly convincing that these guys are now 40 years younger than what they are in real life. And I'm looking going, well, if we can, aging is easy, I think, because you can always just add wrinkles to an actor in the special effects or in makeup. De-aging, if we can really make it look that convincing, what can't we do? Well, it's true, and uh, it, it is getting to the point, and we can anticipate that it's going to continue uh, in that uh, in, in that way. That you can make visual, you know, stuff look uh, uh, extraordinarily realistic. I'm more wor- I'm less worried about this when it comes to entertainment movies and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it, it's if if one can do if that becomes part of the tools that the art of the cinema has, just like color became uh, part of the tools. We didn't used to have that. Just like sound became uh, the tools. I don't think most people would argue against, uh, well, some actually would. Uh, They thought silent was more pure. But most people wouldn't argue against sound or color or uh, uh, any of that. Um, If if those tools become available, uh, there will be good artists who can do good things with them. What worries me more is less... Pacino and uh, uh, De Niro getting their getting their wrinkles taken out. It's more the idea of we won't be able to trust anything we see, for example, in documentaries and the news and all of those uh, uh, you, you know fake things that we see now. Uh, you know, it used to be if there was a video you could bring that to evidence. You could bring it to court, a security video or somebody who got uh, something on their cell phone. Uh, If it gets to the point where digital messing around with visual images that won't only affect Hollywood, it'll affect journalism and ultimately history. That's a a fantastic point because you're just thinking, okay, so now we have an election going on and suddenly a video emerges of a politician saying something wildly racist and we can't tell the difference if it's real or not. Well, and by the time we sort it out, that politician, they're already ruined. And you can, I mean, and that's just a, a starting point. I mean, as I'm just thinking it as I'm talking here, I mean, imagine a president of the United States, whoever that might be at any point, who suddenly is on TV announcing they've fired nuclear weapons at Russia. And we and it's a made-up thing, and we can't tell. I mean, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. You can see how this thing could become nightmarish if it was not properly or responsibly used. And we, we've we've seen the first stages of that. Uh, I mean, Photoshop's been along for how, around for how long? And uh, uh, a lot of people have gotten uh, temporarily in trouble by by uh, Photoshop. Uh, the other thing is it'll also give plausible uh, deniability to anyone. You'll just be able to remember Anthony Weiner and the yes texts of his underwear and everything. Um, when he denied that back then, you know, within a few days, you know, he had to he had to fess up. Um, Pretty soon you'll be able to deny pictures like that, and you'll be able to keep denying them. Just say someone messed with it. Yeah, you're charged with a, with a horrible crime, and you're caught on security camera, and you go, oh, it wasn't me. Someone just made that up, and how do we know? It's, it's, it is a Pandora's box for sure. I don't know if you saw probably about a year or two ago there was a uh, thing they were calling deep fakes then. That, this is sort of the preamble to right. this. Exactly, yeah. With uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Steve Buscemi, where they put Steve Buscemi's face on her body at an awards show, and you could not tell yeah. that it was fake, except that suddenly Jennifer Lawrence was really, really, really unattractive. <laughs> <laughs> but it looked perfect. Like, it, it, it was it was as if it was the real person, and you looked and had those same thoughts. What could you do with this if you really wanted to be malicious or difficult or whatever else. Yeah, and the better it gets, that gets spookier and spookier. I mean, we've been messing with, uh, what was it? There was a TV guide cover way back in the 80s or 90s where I think they put Oprah's 
face on Anne Margaret's body, I believe it was. I may have that off a little bit, but uh, uh, and someone called them out on it and became a big story. And in fact, that had happened. But uh, before you know, everybody else had completely bought that before that. It is uh, it is a huge question of where this goes, and I think you were right with something you said five or six minutes ago, and that is, if if I was an actor right now, especially one who's not wildly famous or wildly successful, one of those people who just sort of, they kind of need you sometimes to fill the background or whatever. I'm not the one an extra, but a, you know, a Clint Howard who's in every single movie that his brother does, but who's there, but not really. Those are people, if I'm one of them, I'd be concerned about my career if this thing were to ever take off. Why pay those people if we can just fill them in with these background people? Yeah, if you can get Joan Crawford to, you know, to do your uh, uh, minor roles, um, (laughs) who needs living actors? But uh, last thing before I let you go, are we at the point, though, where right now James Dean's estate apparently gave permission for this, but if you can take the deep fake thing we talked about with Steve Buscemi and Jennifer Lawrence and just start to tweak the face a little bit or tweak the body a little bit... Pretty soon, you're not even going to have to ask permission because you'll just be able to find this stuff and hide it enough that we're not going to really know who they are, but you can still turn them into a passable actor. Yeah, I, I, I think that's going to be, a, and, and I, I agree that the technology is at a spiral that we can, uh, uh, you know, we'd have never, ever, ever imagined 30 years ago what we've got now. But, uh, and underground stuff, that's where the deep fake kind of thing, where it's unattributable. Uh, you know, actual big movies and everything, if they're pulling something like this, are probably going to have to go through the, uh, uh, through the motions. Uh, namely, because part of the appeal of this whole James Dean thing is that James Dean, who's been dead since 1955, is going to be in a movie. That's what you want to sell. If you're disguising it so you don't have to pay for it, right. we wouldn't be having this conversation. All right, so we've talked about a lot of the worrisome stuff. As I let you go, let's take the good side of this one, if there is a good side to this one. Who's the actor you want to see back acting again who's been long gone? Well, you know, I, I suppose the, the first choices are always people that died young and that, 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 didn't get, that, that weren't in that many things. So uh, in the same order of um, uh, James Dean's M- Montgomery Clift, um, only in a few movies, Red River, one of the great Hollywood movies uh, uh, ever made. Uh, would love to see him in some more movies. But he's an example of the kind of acting he did, like the kind of James Dean uh, did. A computer, I don't care how good of a computer, I don't think is going to be able to do that. Robert Thompson, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture, almost kept my promise about no Disney, but do appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. That was lots of fun. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.